Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Safety Perspectives from Region 6. Today, we're going to talk about a new rule that OSHA prepared. Uh, As it turns out, on February 5th, just a little while ago, February 5th, 2024, OSHA issued a proposed rule that addresses fire brigades and standards related to fire brigades. The rule, as proposed, would update a standard that's more than 40 years old, It's only gone some modest revisions since it was created 40 years ago. The uh, proposed rule is about 250 pages long and makes in that 250 pages, it won't surprise you to know that it significantly transforms or proposes to transform the fire brigade standard into an emergency response standard, focusing not only on firefighting, but also on emergency medical services, tactical rescue, and equivalent services offered in workplaces by employer-provided services, with the exception maybe of the COVID-19 standards that OSHA created. There hasn't been uh, other proposals for a change in recent memories that has been quite this comprehensive. And Having 250 pages of information to go through, I I know, can be intimidating. But fortunately, today, I have my good friend and law partner from Houston, John Surma, joining us to discuss it. And John has uh, written a blog on this that will be published soon. But he's going to give us a preview today and talk us through his hours of study of this. John, is, is that right? Hours of study? Yeah, Frank, and, and, you know, we've had Tom Baldwin on this podcast, so I think it's fair that we can say that uh, we do a fair amount of work for um, EMS services, including very large EMS services, and in conjunction with our representation of clients in that space, it was important that we understand what the rule requires, and as you've indicated, it transforms or or proposes to transform what was a relatively short, relatively straightforward fire brigade specific standard into a standard that applies to fire, EMS, technical rescue, the equivalents in private service locations, so plants, refineries, what have you, and, you know, covers everything from, you know, training and PPE to physical fitness and medical requirements to, um, vehicle operation and vehicle standards. It's it's incredibly comprehensive and, and, and incredibly detailed. And quite frankly, if this rule that has been proposed actually becomes a, an OSHA standard, I think it changes the face of emergency response across this country. Well, it sure sounds that way. Now, it's only in the proposed stages, and there's still time to comment on it. Uh, and I understand the deadline for comments is May 6th. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Normally, it, there's a 60-day window. Um, on the short end, 30 days. 
Um, in this case, OSHA extended the comment period to 90 days. I would not be surprised if that comment period does not get extended some, or, or I shouldn't say that. I guess I should say I would not be surprised if it is extended some. I think there's going to be a lot of feedback, but I, you know, for the time being, we have to target May 6th as the deadline. And um, yeah, we're going to be involved with various industry players in responding and, and commenting and, you know, if there's testimony testifying about the impact this is going to have. Yeah. So I want to talk about that for just a, a, a few minutes here. Who can comment? Pretty much anybody. Anybody who's got an interest can can raise a comment and you can do it online. I checked the NPRM yesterday, the notice of proposed rulemaking yesterday, and there were already three comments submitted, albeit it's a little bit hard to navigate your way to the comments. Anybody can comment. Um, I think, you know, submitting the comment electronically, the way comments are often submitted electronically, you end up with a lot of folks just kind of, you know, shooting off a two sentence comment. So along those lines, and I don't want to get bogged down in this procedural process, but for those who are interested in commenting, um, I know, I know we've each provided assistance to, to folks that wanted to, to formalize and, and, and give good professional organized arguments or comments on, on different proposed rules. But in, in general, for somebody who wanted to go out and do it on their own, what style or recommendations or, or scope do you generally uh, offer employers to think about or commenters to think about when they're preparing those comments? Look, first of all, you're not sending an email to your friends or family. So, you know, and, you know, it should be, you know, sort of a, the way you would structure any argument where you present the argument, you s- present the supports for the argument, you know, you're clear, you're lucid, you're not overly wordy. And as a consequence, obfuscating or, or you want to make sure that everything's good and clear and tight and, you know, understandable and concise. And, and quite frankly, you know, to the extent that uh, contact information is requested, you know, providing good, accurate contact information. They do take these comments, and the expectation is that once OSHA receives these comments or objections or complaints, that OSHA will respond to them. And uh, sometimes the comments or suggestions or complaints actually alter what comes out of the rulemaking process, right? I mean, we've, we've seen that. Oh, absolutely. That. Absolutely. And, and, and candidly, when, when we're litigating under some of these specific standards, we will frequently go back to the comments and OSHA's responses that are contained in the, what we call the preamble to the rule. And it, it can be very helpful having, helping get a better and deeper understanding of what OSHA expected um, or expects of employers when they pass these rules. So in a proposal that is as comprehensive and sweeping as as this revision, this, tr- this transformation of its current rule, 1910.156, right? Yes, sir. It, and and it's, it's, it will still be 1910.156. There are some other OSHA standards that, that are going to be affected. affected. Yeah. Really? All right. Yeah. Well, let, so let, let me just finish my thought then on 1910-156. So, you, you know, the comments and the objections and the suggestions can impact what actually goes into that final rule. But there are other areas that are going to be affected. Will there actually be changes to them? Yeah. And so the other, the other standards that are going to be impacted are 
the impact's relatively modest. So in 1910.6, they're incorporating by reference a number of NFPA documents. In 1910.120, it's- Well, let's stop right there. NFPA, that's National Fire Protection Association? Yes, sir. So and, same, and, and sorry, go ahead. The same folks that put out, you know, the National Electric Code and, you know, Life Safety Code put out a bunch of other things, you know, heavily influenced or, or heavily um, directed towards fire and firefighting and fire prevention. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's there's 22 NFPA standards that they're looking at incorporating by reference. Is that right? The The full standard? Yes, sir. The complete standard. So they incorporate by reference. And what does that mean, practically speaking, then? Well, I mean, from a practical standpoint, what that means is when the standard is incorporated by reference, OSHA is going to treat the standard as a regular force of law. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I mean, they're, they, it's not, they can't cite NFPA, blah, 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 1988, you know, section 3.2.8.1. But they will do under the general duty clause that you violated NFPA 1988, 5.2.3.1. And if they incorporate by reference, they'll be able to refer back to an actual standard. Yes, sir. Uh, and so they're also changing the Haswopper regulation and Appendix B under 1910.120? Yeah, there the biggest change is the change relative to emergency responders having response level training or excuse me, awareness level training. So historically, emergency responders, especially those that stayed in the cold zone, basically the, the training that they received was stay in the cold zone. So the cold zone being the area where there's no right. contamination or potential for contamination. And so there really wasn't a need to put folks through awareness level HESWAPR training. Under the proposed revisions, those folks would be required to undergo awareness level HESWAPR training. Did they, uh, in, in the proposed rule, did they explain why they were expanding it? I think that the explanation can be summarized as maybe having some doubts about whether or not folks actually remain in the cold zone. And, uh, you know, look, I, I work with emergency providers all the time. And, you know, there is, and, and Frank, correct me if I'm wrong, but you got your EMT during the pandemic, didn't you? Uh, no, I did take classes during the pandemic, but I, I, I didn't finish the practicum. There, there's a there, there's a practicum, and but I, I mean, I'm assuming you know you have had the same experience that I have had. That you know, folks that are emergency responders, they're the folks that are running to the gunfire, and mm-hmm. you know, telling them to stay in the cold zone. You know, I mean, there's some number that are going to stay in the cold zone, and then there's some number that, you know, they see a problem, they're going to cross into the warm zone or the hot zone. So, I mean, I, I think, and I think that's where, and I think that's, I mean, that's a long way of explaining what OSHA has probably explained in, in slightly different terms, but I think that's ultimately what the concern is. Uh, that is, seems seems fair enough, and and and, and uh, I'm. Uh, I'm I'm saying this with an asterisk. Actually, sounds maybe like it might be reasonable. I think to some extent it is reasonable. We're in a business that's about detail, and like everything else, the devil is in the details. And you know, one of the details that applies here is there's a little lack of clarity about what OSHA's expectations are about how this standard is going to apply 
to an organization that does both true emergency response and non-emergency response. So, you know, a lot of our audience may not be aware, but your local EMS service, in addition to responding to fires, shootings, car wrecks, what have you, they're also doing a lot of what's called inter-facility transfer IFT work, where they're taking a patient from a nursing home, a, a rehab, a hospital, whatever, and transporting them to some other facility. Are there risks in that work? Sure, there's some risks. You know that you're lifting a person, you're 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 going in and out of a facility. Um, you know, th- th- there's there's some. I mean, you know, look, you, you and I sitting where we're sitting doing our podcast, and we could get struck by lightning. There's a risk, but you know, is it wait, the same? Wait, what? What? Yeah, I know. I know. know. That bus may just veer off the street and plow into our house. I mean, you know, who knows, right? But, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, is this really what OSHA is contemplating? No, I don't think that's what they've contemplated. The way the rule is drafted, every single call they make, regardless of the level of hazard, calls for all these other things to happen. Uh, You know, and I guess that makes sense. And as I look down the list, it's logical that that a, a, a change to 1910-156 would also impact these other areas, respiratory protection, portable fire extinguishers, standpipe and hose systems, and automatic sprinkler systems. Well, that, let me talk about those last two real quick. Okay, standpi- standpipes and sprinklers? Yeah, this one is one that I think is great, but I, I, there's a lot of enforcement issues here. What those two require is if, you know, Frank Davis PC owns a building and it has an automatic sprinkler system in it, or it has a standpipe system, Frank Davis PC has to ensure that the fittings for the standpipe system or the automatic sprinkler system are compatible with what the local fire department uses. I was going to say, I, I think the local fire marshals are already doing those inspections and, uh, and issuing local citations. Um, for for violations of NFPA as adopted by local city code. I've actually had that issue come up a couple of times around here. Well, and, and so, and, and I don't disagree. You've got a lot of uh, older, smaller communities in Region 6, right, where you have older buildings. I, I don't know what the building codes are in those areas, but I guess this would this would be a proposed sweeping change that might not have the the same exemptions for those older buildings that maybe a local building code would. Is, is, is that kind of the point? Well, I think it is the point. I mean, the reality is, is that the number of cities like Dallas and Fort Worth and Houston, Austin, San Antonio that have kind of large, sophisticated fire departments that are out there enforcing these rules, you know, while it covers the vast majority of the population of this country, I would guess, you know, from the standpoint of the number of buildings, I'm guessing not. And I mean, you know, you, you roll into any smaller town, even a town like the size of Waco, I'm guessing they don't have the same type of resources that you do elsewhere. And so I'm guessing even in towns that size, you're probably talking about places that don't keep up with the codes. Uh, that makes sense. I'm certain that they didn't uh, consider that when they were doing the economic analysis, huh? Yeah, I, I mean, the, so... And, and 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 look, we can geek out on this if if our audience were to like it and to let us know that they want us to go into greater detail. Or there's a lot of impact, and 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 you know, from the standpoint of the smaller rural and underserved communities where you're having trouble getting people to do these jobs in the first place, where 
um, resources are expensive, where reimbursement rates are low. I think this is going to trigger all these providers pulling out of those areas because they just can't comply. I mean, even at fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars, as projected by OSHA, some of these organizations are operating on such small margins that that cost is is they just aren't going to be able to do it. And then you throw in some of the things like, you know, you have to offer responders fitness programs that they can participate in during working hours, but you don't have more than one crew on at a time and they're the 911 provider for that area. So how exactly do you give them time to do fitness training when they're doing call after call after call after call? It's just any underserved community where these businesses are already operating on incredibly small margins. I think it's going to get a whole lot worse. Yeah. So it's, it's, I guess, to our initial point, it's a good place to to get some comments and some questions and objections and maybe some clarification points, uh, which is going on right now. And that's probably one of the reasons why OSHA made it such a long response period. Let me, though, turn your attention to 1910.156 proper. I understand that it's divided into 19 sections and categorizes the subject employers as either emergency service organizations, ESOs, or workplace emergency response employers, sometimes referred to as WER, but also sometimes referred to as workplace emergency yes. response teams, WERTs. WERs and WERTs were, there, you know, you often find them in chemical plants, refineries, large manufacturing facilities, and power generation facilities where the size of the workforce and the hazards associated with emergencies are such that owners and operators of those facilities find value in having on-site uh, fire, fire departments uh, and uh, emergency medical responders. But what I want to talk about is, you know, um, of these 19 sections uh, th- that are coming out, uh, we, we certainly can't cover them all. Uh, maybe you can't even mention them all uh, without making it confusing. But uh, John, again, I know you've been through this carefully and thoughtfully, and you've already begun formulating some comments, questions, and objections for OSHA to consider. Uh, of of these areas, which, which did you find to be uh, the most uh, compelling or maybe attention-grabbing? So there's a few. One of those relates to essentially um, the obligation to for the organization to establish its emergency response plan and the emergency service capabilities. The issue there is, is that there's an expectation relative to facility assessments and community assessments. And there's at least some suggestion or, or there, there, there's a lack of clarity about what exactly it is OSHA is talking about. I think a plain reading way to read this that would suggest that if you're talking about like a particularly high crime area, an area where there's rioting taking place, an area where the buildings are in particularly poor condition, um, what have you, that the emergency service organization um, or even the WERT as relates to its own facilities, or you know, a lot of them are sort of a mutual aid system where a group of plants, refineries, industrial facilities will have kind of a shared service model where you need to avoid providing services there. 
and it seems like this is, you know, essentially creating an OSHA standard that says to the ESO or the WIRTS, um, but particularly the ESO, you know, don't go there. The other thing that I thought was interesting is the medical and physical requirements. EMS has historically had a lot of difficulty hiring folks. The physical requirement component, as well as the fitness, ongoing fitness requirements, I think you're going to have some real serious barriers to entry, barriers to retention, and there's no caveats or exceptions for ADA compliance, for age-related compliance, et cetera. The, the third thing that I think is is going to be a pretty dramatic uh, shift is the, the focus on incident management systems and the expectation that essentially all providers in a particular community uh, or that service a particular community coordinate and operate under an incident command system. And for those that don't know what an incident command system is, um, you know, without kind of going into all the granular detail, you know, basically one person is the incident commander and they direct the operations of all the other entities that are on site. Um, it creates, you know, multi-employer issues. It creates joint employment, co-employment issues. I also think that from the standpoint of, you know, kind of mixing and mashing these organizations, you're going to have private organizations combined with public organizations. It's going to compel these organizations to hammer out agreements or deals or what have you that, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of unequal bargaining power. And so, you know, I think that this is going to pretty dramatically alter the lay of the land simply as a result of compelling these organizations to follow the incident command system. What about volunteer fire departments or volunteer emergency medical services and and maybe unincorporated areas that don't have a city fire department that that falls under the protection of being part of the state and and a public organization that is uh, outside of, a, of of OSHA's citation authority. Apparently, in the Northeast, a lot of the volunteer fire departments are actually essentially private entities. And I don't know if it's like a subscription-based situation where if you want them to provide you services, you pay a fee per year and, and, and they provide you services. I, I'm not exactly sure how that works. Um, but certainly, you know, where I grew up in Wisconsin and, and here in Texas, your volunteer fire department is a governmental slash quasi-governmental entity and would not be covered by OSHA. And so they wouldn't have an obligation to um, comply with the standard. Those private entities, however, in that space, you know, even though they're volunteer, if there is remuneration for the folks, if the providers are being provided something of value, and the bar is pretty low threshold, you know, life insurance, uh, you know, a certain amount of reimbursement, meals, et cetera. If they're being provided those things at no cost, OSHA considers them to no longer be volunteers. And so those entities would be covered. Now, if they are complete volunteers that don't receive any sort of monetary value in exchange for their services, then they wouldn't be covered. So, I mean, they might be able to slip around it by essentially eliminating any and all perks associated with it. But I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Frank, but I think in Texas, if you're a volunteer firefighter or volunteer EMS, you get you can get basically a free license plate for your vehicle, an EMS or, or a firefighter, volunteer firefighter license plate. I know in Wisconsin you could. And, and I mean, I don't know, OSHA may be looking at things even as kind of generic and, and 
you know, relatively low cost as that. Yeah, that's interesting. So, John, really appreciate your insight on this. Uh, we'll all be looking forward to seeing your blog article when it comes out. Uh, John, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Uh, and it's good catching up as always. Thank you so much, my friend. Hey, Frank, it's a pleasure. Look forward to doing this again. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.